Hey there, it's me, Malika. Today, I'm handing over the microphone to my Al Jazeera colleague, Josh Rushing. Enjoy, and I'll be back soon. If you listened to our last episode on Wednesday, then you heard about QAnon, the American-centric nesting doll of conspiracy theories that's spreading across the globe. The movement began with the unfounded claims that satanic-worshipping politicians and celebrities work in tandem with global governments to abuse children. We talked to Aoife Gallagher, a researcher who's been following QAnon since its early days, and she had a warning. If you know anyone, friends or family, that you think are getting into these movements, just make sure you you talk to them, you reach out to them. The saddest thing about this is that you hear countless stories, especially out of the US, of people losing friends and family to these movements. But having a productive conversation about a conspiracy theory with someone who's falling for one, well, that's easier said than done. I've many times found myself at a loss for what to say to someone when the conversation shifts to globalist plots to rule the world. And I wish I could say that these are infrequent occurrences, but they're not. These are people that I care about, but it seems like we don't share the same reality. So much so that it's created a distance between us that unfortunately is quite real. So why are conspiracy theories so powerful? What's their allure? And how can we cut through their haze of confusion? I'm Josh Rushing, and for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To answer these questions, I talked to someone who's interacted with many conspiracy theorists over the years. My name is Jovan Byford. I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at the Open University in the UK. And I've been interested in conspiracy theories for the past 20 years or so, ever since I've done my PhD on the topic in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, what's different now about the world of conspiracy theories than when you started studying them then? My PhD was on conspiracy theories in a specific setting. I I was born and I grew up in in Serbia. And in 1999, there was obviously the very dramatic event of the NATO bombing of Serbia, which led to a proliferation of conspiracy theories in that country. And I think now I have to say that at the time of the global pandemic, I can see a lot of similarities. There is a whole cluster of conspiracy theories about COVID-19 that have obviously emerged since the start of the pandemic. A slew of COVID-19 misinformation has been going viral on social media. You've probably seen people commenting about this pandemic video going around on social media. The internet is a virtual sewer of misinformation, hoaxes and ignorant bunk. Dr. Byford says conspiracy theories may be popular right now because the cause of the pandemic might seem out of proportion with its consequences. So in the case of COVID-19, we're faced with a situation where over a relatively short period of a few months, there were lockdowns, there were restrictions on international travel, people couldn't leave their home and so on and so forth. And yet the explanation for that is that there was a virus in rural China that skipped from one species to another. And here we are several months later, the world is at a standstill. There is a mismatch between the mundaneness of the cause and the dramatic nature of the consequence. And that is somehow jarring in the way that people make sense of the world around them. And conspiracy theories are waiting in the wings, ready to jump in and offer an explanation. What happens 
is that conspiracy theories that have existed in the past tend to be regurgitated and applied to new circumstances, slightly modified in order to meet the requirements and answer the questions of today. Listen to any conspiracy theories now and you might hear echoes from the past. Perhaps you've heard one of the many baseless claims about 5G technology. The mistaken belief 5G technology is tied to the COVID-19 outbreak. You're laying 5G? Yeah. You know that kills people? Before COVID, 5G skeptics tried to link the wireless technology to cancer. And while 5G wasn't around during the flu pandemic of the 1890s, some people back then blamed the virus on new technologies at the time, like the light bulb. And then there's the current round of anti-vaccination rhetoric. There have been a growing number of anti-vaccination conspiracy theories online. A lot of the anti-vaccination arguments that we see today are the same arguments that we saw in relation to MMR vaccines and the whole Andrew Wakefield controversy in the 1990s. The Lancet, one of the most respected medical journals in the world, published Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent research on vaccines in 1998. It took them 12 years to retract it, and it's been widely debunked. A respected British medical journal retracted a study that said the MMR vaccine may trigger autism. Dr. Andrew Wakefield, the study's main author, behaved unethically with callous disregard for the children involved. So some of the distinctions between reasonable skepticism and full-on conspiracy theory, well, they're harder to make than they might appear at first glance. Perhaps you can help by defining conspiracy versus conspiracy theory. Okay. Conspiracy theories are explanations, usually of some dramatic political or social event, that suggest that those events are the outcome of a carefully worked out plan plotted in secret by a small group of powerful individuals. So that's the definition of a conspiracy theory. Sounds straightforward, but plenty of events that make headlines are the result of a small number of people coming together to bring about a desired outcome. When you call grandma in Nebraska, the NSA knows. McKinsey reportedly agreeing to pay some $573 million over its role in advising firms to, quote, supercharge opioid sales in the United States. Now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. Dr. Byford says that himself. So the question that arises is, well, how do you differentiate between these real-life actual instances of collusion, cover-up, corruption, and so forth, and those which we refer to as conspiracy theories, and those are the ones that are bogus, that are based on some sort of faulty logic or reasoning. There are a few critical differences between a conspiracy theory and an actual conspiracy. The first one is the nature of the alleged conspiracy. So if we look at instances of actual conspiracies. The Watergate hearings, the investigation into the granddaddy of modern political scandal, skullduggery, leaks, lies, and Washington cover-ups. The Saudis' ever-evolving story about what really happened to Jamal Khashoggi changing yet again. A fake CIA hepatitis vaccination program helped locate Osama bin Laden. What we're dealing with here is relatively localized and smaller conspiracies that have a fixed aim, which is to gain political advantage, military advantage, and so forth. Conspiracy theorists, so when we talk about bogus conspiracy theories, they approach conspiracies in a completely different way. 
All of the satanic cults are connected, worldwide. People at the highest level are only at the highest level because they participate. Do what you're told by scumbag government owned by foreign banks. I mean, these are kook, cult, demons, hardcore, evil. They argue that everything in the world is the result of a conspiracy and that these disparate kind of instances of collusion and events can be put under the umbrella of an overarching conspiracy that actually goes about and explains everything. Then there's also the outcome of those conspiracies. We know that with real conspiracies, they never turn out as intended because one can never prevent cock-ups, one cannot prevent errors, one cannot prevent betrayals, whistleblowers. Edward Snowden is the 29-year-old intelligence contractor who leaked top-secret National Security Agency information. Chelsea Manning, the Army whistleblower convicted of leaking classified military documents to WikiLeaks. British intelligence specialist Catherine Gunn, who risked everything to blow the whistle on U.S. dirty tricks at the United Nations in the lead-up to the Iraq invasion in 2003. What real-life conspiracies have shown is that actually governments and those in power are pretty bad at keeping secrets. For the conspiracy theorists, that is a problem because their assumption is that those who are behind the conspiracy are so powerful that they never make mistakes, they're able to cover everything up, which is why they're so successful. And then there's also an eye a conspiracy theorist uses to look at evidence. So everything is geared towards dismissing any disconfirming evidence and always looking for cover-up. You know, there's a maxim in archaeology that says if you go looking for something on a dig, you'll find it. Yeah. And I wonder when a journalist goes and and they're looking for conspiracy, how is that different than when someone who's into conspiracy theory does the same? Part of investigative journalism 101 is that if you suspect that there is a conspiracy, that is a hypothesis which you need to test and find proof for before you can make that claim. For the conspiracy theories, the idea that there is a conspiracy is the unshakable principle. So it's the starting point and something that will never change. Requiring proof for a belief, though, how do you reconcile that with people's belief in religion then that requires faith? Those who are believers in conspiracy theory would deny that it is a matter of faith. They would say that it is a matter of fact. They see themselves not so much as priests or preachers, they see themselves as scientists, as researchers. But you would point out that they always start with the answer, and then the research goes to support that rather than the other way around. Yes, the first and fundamental assumption is that there is a conspiracy, and then the rest is just a quest for evidence. So it used to be with conspiracies. I I didn't have to engage with them directly. I don't care if you think the world's flat or not. I'm not sure how that affects me or, you know, or my world. But now with QAnon in the States, there are people that I love, that I respect, that are believing in this. And I don't know how to engage them on it when we don't seem to be able to share any common facts. How, how can I engage someone who believes in conspiracy theory? When talking to people who have succumbed to conspiracy theories... I would say that there are six basic principles. So let's break those down one by one. First off, acknowledge the scale of the task. There is no silver bullet. There is no single argument that you can present 
to a believer in conspiracy theories that is going to suddenly change their mind. Then there's rule number two. Recognize the emotional dimension behind the conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are not just about what is true and what is not true. They're always about what is good and what is evil. And this is why arguments with people who believe in conspiracy theories can often turn into a shouting match because it is about how conspiracy theories make them feel. So always be prepared to de-escalate the situation and to keep the dialogue going without necessarily giving ground. Next up, the third rule. Find out what it actually is the person you're talking to believes. Now, there's a couple components to this. One is to know where the other party falls in the spectrum of conspiracy belief. There is, of course, a small minority of people who are really firm believers in conspiracy theories. And there are people who are radical skeptics. But there are many more people who are in between those two extremes who engage with conspiracy theories in much more complex ways. For example, they could be someone who kind of lightheartedly discusses a conspiracy theory for fun. Or they might not agree with conspiracy theorists, but thinks they're asking the right questions. And in addition to knowing how they believe, you have to know what they believe, what they're engaging with. Basically, do your research. What websites they visited, what YouTube videos they've seen, what is it that they believe and what the source of information is. Do some prep work, find the arguments that debunk those particular theories and you can present them in your conversation. Then there's the fourth rule. Try to find some common ground. People might turn to conspiracy theories to address some very real concerns. A concern about the distribution of power, about quality, about mass surveillance and so on. And in some sense, although this is the starting point for their conspiracy theory, it is also an important common ground. What you're trying to do is to suggest that conspiracy theories do not offer the adequate answers to these concerns. I've seen firsthand how some conspiracy theorists do exactly that, capitalize on a real issue to spread their own baseless claims. A couple years back, I did a story for Al Jazeera about the misinformation around measles vaccines. In it, I challenged this guy, Del Bigtree. He's a prominent anti-vaxxer with a weekly internet show. And I was asking him about his use of numbers. I know what I'm saying is there's 412 reported deaths. I've never said there were 412 so, confirmed so deaths. So some of those reported. causes of death on VAERS, yeah. one was a drowning, sure. one was from co-sleeping, one was a pre-existing heart condition. After our show came out, Dell's team put out their own video using parts of our conversation that didn't make it into the episode. And after their video made it online, I was doxxed. For months, I got calls from people accusing me of being on the side of the pharmaceutical industry, even though at that very time I was investigating the pharmaceutical industry for the high cost of insulin and some other drugs. Now Dell's show has been removed from YouTube, but it still airs online. And he's transitioned from making false claims about autism and the measles vaccine to doing the same with COVID. And that leads right into rule number five. Value their argument and concerns but debunk their false claims and contextualize what it is they're citing. When you talk to a, to a believer in conspiracy theories, you can take a two-pronged approach. So one of them is to present them with uh, factual arguments to, to try to debunk their beliefs through presentation of genuine facts. But the other one is to actually challenge the relevance and value of conspiracy theories as an explanation. And one way to do that is to say, here are examples of 
other conspiracy theories that have been put forward in the past and actually they have always come up short. Dr. Byford's sixth and final tip, be realistic. This goes back to the first rule. You're not going to change anyone's mind in one go, but it's still worth the conversation. So the purpose of your conversation with them is to gradually chip away at the arguments um, of the conspiracy theory and try to contaminate their way of thinking with critical arguments that undermine that appeal of the conspiracy theory. Now, that could also mean breaking up your task into smaller parts. Instead of trying to get them to abandon their beliefs, maybe try convincing them to set those beliefs aside for a particular action. So, for instance, if you're talking to somebody who is uh, completely embraced the anti-vaccination conspiracy theory, you may not be able to persuade them that theory is completely untrue, but you may focus your attention on trying to persuade them to get vaccinated despite their beliefs. Part of acknowledging the scale of the task also means recognizing there's only so much one conversation can do. What can governments do to address conspiracy on a broad scale? It's not just governments, it's society more generally. It is in more calm and peaceful times that governments, educators, schools, universities, and so on, need to have a more concerted effort not to convince some kind of wide anti-radicalization program or anything like that, but to simply to make an effort to show to the population at large why conspiracy theories are wrong. Not really why they are morally wrong, but why they are wrong at providing answers to important social and political questions. So the next time the conversation shifts to plots by a cabal of satanic pedophiles, take a breath. Validate their concern for the well-being of children and know that leading them out of this rabbit hole may not be easy or quick, but it's certainly worth the effort. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Dina Kesbe, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Nay Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Josh Rushing, in from Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>